A Good Man is Hard to Find, is a short story by Flannery O'Connor, one of my all-time favorite authors, and I highly recommend her work to you, especially this story. In fact, there's a rare audio recording of her reading this story that is just phenomenal. You can find it, Google it. I love Flannery's voice because it reminds me of my granny from Oklahoma. Her southern accent is to die for. And that's what happens to the main characters in A Good Man is Hard to Find. They all end up dying. A Good Man is Hard to Find is about this family that heads to Florida for vacation. But the grandmother in this story, however, does not want to go to Florida, but would rather her family go to her home state of Tennessee and see some places that she grew up. And part of her reasoning for avoiding Florida is that she read in the papers how a man named the Misfit had recently escaped from prison and was on the loose in Florida. So she didn't want to go there. But the family heads off to Florida anyways in spite of the grandmother's wishes and they eventually do run into this killer named the Misfit. And the Misfit and his friends eventually kill everyone in the family. Now I know it doesn't sound like it, but it's a great story. It's a great story because it highlights like all of Flannery O'Connor's work. It highlights just how wrecked humanity is by sin and what the grace of God looks like when it interrupts and intervenes into the mess of our lives. But before the family meets the misfit and are subsequently murdered, they stop in a cafe along the way to eat. So we'll pick up the story when they're having lunch at Red Sammy's famous barbecue. Red Sam came in and told his wife to quit lounging on the counter and hurry up with these people's order. His khaki trousers reached just to his hip bones and his stomach hung over them like a sack of meal swaying under his shirt. He came over and sat down at a table nearby and let out a combination sigh and yodel. You can't win, he said. You can't win. And he wiped his sweating red face off with a gray handkerchief. These days, you don't know who to trust, he said. Ain't that the truth? People are certainly not like, nice like they used to be, said the grandmother. Two fellers come in here last week, Red Sam, he said, driving a Chrysler. It was an old beat-up car, but it was a good one, and these boys looked all right to me. Said they worked at the mill, and you know, I let them fellers charge the gas they bought. Now, why did I do that? Because you're a good man, the grandmother said at once. Yes, I suppose so, Red Sam said as if he were struck with his answer. His wife brought the orders, carrying the five plates all at once, without a tray, two in each hand and one balance on her arm. It isn't a soul in this green world of God's that you can trust, she said. And I don't count nobody out of that. Not nobody, she repeated, looking at Red Sammy. Did you read about the criminal, the misfit that's escaped, asked the grandmother. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if he didn't attack this place right here, said the woman. If he hears about it being here, I wouldn't be none surprised to see him. If he hears it's two cent in the cash register, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he... That'll do, Red Sam said. Go bring these people their Coca-Colas. And the woman went off to get the rest of the order. A good man is hard to find, Red Sammy said. Everything is getting terrible. I remember the day you could go off and leave your screen door unlatched. Not no more. 
Red Sammy is right. A good man is hard to find. And Psalm 19 would agree with that. Unfortunately, a good man is not just hard to find, it's impossible. It's impossible because there are no good people in this world. We're all bad, we're all sinners, we're all lawbreakers, we all break and have all broken God's law. But the sad part of it all is this, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit admit this about ourselves, we all pick portions of God's law that we think we can fulfill, that we can manage, and we start to think that we are good because we're being successful in one particular area. And it could be anything. Giving, serving, missions, prayer, reading the Bible. And because we do these things regularly or because we do them consistently, then we start buying our own PR and we begin to think that we're not as bad as we really are. We're not as bad as we could be. And we're certainly not as bad as those people. And when we do this, it makes us feel like we're in control. Like God's law is manageable. And we begin to find our identity in these things that we feel like we can manage or these things that we're good at. And that's why what Martin Luther said is true. The devil is forever attracting people to good works to ensure they don't reach the point of thinking they need the grace of Christ. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit this morning that we pick certain aspects of God's law and because we might be somewhat successful in these chosen areas, we start thinking that we're not that bad. We're not as bad as other people, as those people. And because we're successful, we feel like we're in control. We feel like we've been able to make God's law manageable. And we often find our identity in this. It becomes who we are. So we think we can bring God's law down to our level where we think it's more manageable, where we think we can meet its expectations, where we can meet its demands. And we trick ourselves into thinking that we're actually being pretty good, that we're actually doing it, that we're actually pulling it off. And we all do this. We all pick portions of God's law that we're decent at and it subtly fuels our pride and we think we're in control and we begin thinking that we don't need God's grace. And that was the grandmother's problem in a good man is hard to find. We'll look some more at her faults in a moment, but for now, let's keep talking about ours, shall we? We all pick certain portions of God's law that we think we're decent at and it subtly fuels our pride and we think we're in control and we begin thinking that we don't need grace and it manifests itself in all kinds of ways. For instance, we may not agree with the way someone interprets the Bible or how they interpret a particular passage and we think they are wrong and we disagree with them and we begin to think that we're right and we're good and they're the ones who are doing it all wrong. Or maybe because prayer is easier for us, we look down upon people who struggle to pray. 
Or maybe it's that we're passionate about missions. And if we think no one else is, then we start thinking we're the good ones. We're the only ones who care about reaching the unreached people groups of the world with the gospel. And so this kind of law management, it manifests itself in all kinds of ways in our lives. And we start buying and believing our own publicity. And in the end, though, it's just that we have fallen for the lies of the devil, and he has successfully convinced us that we're pretty good and we're not like those people. So we all, in some degree, take on these identities, whatever they are. Some of us might be, I'm the missions guy. I'm the guy that cares about missions. Or I'm the, the lady who reads her Bible every day for three or four hours a day, and that's my identity. Or maybe I'm the reformed guy. I'm the seven-point Calvinist. There are two more points if you didn't know. And I am a seven-pointer. Whole other sermon. Or maybe it's for you. I only eat organic food. Or maybe you're the post-millennial end times guy. See, it doesn't even have to be spiritual things. It might manifest itself like this. Well, I don't eat fast food. Or maybe it's, I don't watch TV. I don't even own one. We all do things like this. We just, you fill in the blanks because we all have these identities that we use to sort of control the world around us and to make life manageable. And these identities give us this sense of control. But the truth is that we don't have control. And our only identity is as a lawbreaker, a sinner. So what God's law does, it comes along and it strips away these illusions. It exposes our fake identities. And then and only then can we see ourselves as we are. Sinners, yet justified. Rebels, yet loved. Lawbreakers, yet forgiven. This is our story, Grace. This is who we are. We all do this well. We're lawbreakers. But the good news of the gospel is this. God loves misfits because misfits are all that there are. God loves misfits. People who can't fit in with his holiness and who he is. God loves misfits. He loves sinners. He loves lawbreakers. God loves people who break his law because that's all he has to work with. There are only sinners, only misfits, only lawbreakers, and only broken people in this world. And until you understand that, the Bible will not make sense. Until you realize that the bad news of the Bible is true of you. Until you realize that everything that the Bible says of sin is true of you. Until you realize that the good news of God's great love for you will not make sense. You see, you have to be exposed by the law before the gospel ever makes sense. You have to hear the bad news of the law before the good news of the gospel ever begins to resonate with your heart. That means then that if you haven't heard the voice, you haven't heard the voice of the law if it doesn't leave you exposed and desperate for a savior. And by contrast, you haven't really heard the voice of the gospel unless it leaves you feeling free and delivered. 
And in Psalm 19, David will tell us that God's holy law has diagnosed him as a misfit, as a lawbreaker. Look at verses 1 through 6 and hear the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. David is telling us here that there are voices. There are these transmissions in the heavens. And what the heavens above are screaming out to us is that there is a God and he is glorious and he is infinite and he is powerful. So the stars and and the Milky Way and the moon and, and the rings that are around Saturn, they are sending out these transmissions to us that there is a God and he is infinitely glorious. And if we listen to these transmissions, if we listen to these voices, we'll realize that we are not like him. He is glorious. He is creator. And we are not like him. We are misfits who are set apart from this glorious God. But even though we are misfits who are nothing like this God, he has made himself known to us. How gracious of him. What condescension. Yahweh, the sovereign creator of the universe, has made himself known through his word, through the law. So yes, God has made himself known through what theologians call general revelation. You can look at creation and you can ascertain that there is a creator behind it all. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 1. There are transmissions constantly being sent out by the universe that God exists, that he is powerful, that he is glorious, and therefore no one is without excuse. Everyone can look up, everyone can look around and see and therefore know that there is a God, there is a powerful creator. But this knowledge is not sufficient for salvation. And that's why God went another step. He has revealed himself through his word. He has revealed what he expects of humanity in his law. The heavens declare the glory of God, but God does not stop there. He reveals himself and what he expects of us in his law. And that's what David says next in Psalm 19. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. God has revealed himself through his word. He is gracious to us in this regard. He has told us what he is like and what he expects of us. What he expects from us. The moral requirements, the law, 
that hang over every single human being in this world can be summed up in the Ten Commandments. So when I say law, we're just talking about summing it up in the Ten Commandments. And they can be summed up even more simply with these words, be perfect. So God has revealed himself and what he expects of us in the law. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the law in a nutshell. And the law is good because it reveals God and it reveals our sin. So please understand today, the law is Good. That's what David is saying here in verses 7 through 11. He's telling us that the law is perfect, that it revives, it makes one wise, it's pure, it enlightens the eyes, it's true. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 7. We read it earlier, let's read it again. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is just. The law is pure. God's law is not the problem We are the problem. We are lawbreakers, therefore we are the problem. What the law does is it diagnoses us as sinners and rebels. It accuses us as lawbreakers. It's through the law that we learn that we are sinners. That's Paul's point in Romans 7. That's David's point in Psalm 19. The law diagnoses us and tells us that we are lawbreakers, that we are misfits who stand in stark contrast to a holy God. So the law is not the problem. It simply diagnoses us. It's like going to the doctor and finding out that you have some illness or some problem or maybe even cancer. You don't get mad at the doctor because he diagnosed you with cancer. You hate the cancer. You hate the sickness, not the doctor. So we don't hate the law. We uphold it. We hate the sin that the law diagnoses. We hate the sin that rises up in each one of us when we encounter God's good law. So the law accuses us. It points its finger at us. It accuses us as lawbreakers. That's not all that the law does. David says here that the law instructs, it warns, it admonishes. But no matter what the law does, whether it is instructing, warning, and admonishing, no matter what it does, it always finds sin, therefore it always accuses. Please let me repeat all of that because I want you to understand it. The law accuses us, it points its finger at us, it accuses us as lawbreakers. That's not all that the law does. 
David says here the law instructs, the law warns, the law admonishes. But no matter what the law does, whether it is instructing, whether it is warning, whether it is admonishing, no matter what it does, it always finds sin. And therefore, it always accuses. And that's why David says what he says in verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The perfections of God's law in verses 7 through 11 bring to light the imperfections of David in verses 12 through 14. So when David speaks of God's holy law, he can't help but remember and speak of his sinful heart. When David says that the law is good and pure and right and holy, he is immediately reminded that he doesn't measure up to the standard of the law. He immediately must speak of and acknowledge his own sin. So David knows that when he admits that he has this dark side, it is only then that grace comes. When David can finally admit that he has this dark side, this shadow side that nobody knows about, it is then and only then that grace comes. So David knows he needs to be rescued. He knows that he needs a redeemer, someone outside of himself to provide the salvation that he needs. And that's why David doesn't run to the law to be justified. He knows that the law is holy. He knows that the law is good. He knows that the law is true. But he doesn't run to the law to be justified. He doesn't run to the law to be declared righteous because David knows that he won't and he can't measure up. He knows that righteousness must come apart from the law outside of himself. That's what Paul says in Romans 3, verses 20 to 22. There is a righteousness now revealed apart from the law. And so for David and us, we must remember that the law is a mirror to expose our sinfulness, to expose our dirt, to expose our ugliness. The law is a mirror. No one looks in a mirror, sees that their face is dirty, and then rubs their face all over the mirror expecting to get it cleaned. No one does that, do they? I mean, kids might. I don't know. Kids do thing, weird things. So do us adults. But no one goes up to the mirror and says, oh, my face is dirty. I better rub my face on the mirror to get it clean. No, we look in the mirror, see that our face is dirty. We turn to something else to, to clean it up. That's what David is saying here. He knows that he has deep caverns of sin in his heart. He knows that he has what he calls here hidden faults. And so he needs the law to diagnose him all the time because he has nooks and crannies in his heart that need to be exposed. He knows that he is prone to find his identity in many things. He knows that there are idols in his heart. He struggles with sin. And so David loves and values God's law because it continually diagnoses him as a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And that's why he cries out to Yahweh because Yahweh is that savior. Yahweh is that redeemer. David knows that he needs the voice 
in his, the voice of the law in his life because if he doesn't hear the radical demands of the law, then he'll become pharisaical and self-righteous. If God's law does not regularly expose David's heart, then David will begin thinking like the grandmother in the story, a good man is hard to find. He'll start thinking he's not a bad person which is exactly how the grandmother viewed herself in the story. The grandmother of this family in A Good Man is Hard to Find takes pride in the fact that she is a lady. She's a, a nice, cultured, refined, and dignified southern lady that has manners. And so for her, she takes pride in the fact that she's a lady. That's her identity, and you see it in the story when she's described as they get in the car as the family's heading out for vacation. It says the old lady settled herself comfortably, removing her white cotton gloves and putting them up with her purse on the shelf in front of the back window. The children's mother, this is her daughter-in-law, the children's mother still had on slacks and still had her head tied up in a green kerchief. So her daughter-in-law is just roughing it on this trip. But the grandmother is, is dressed and dignified. The grandmother had on a navy blue straw sailor hat with a bunch of white violets on the brim and a navy blue dress with a small white dot in the print. Her collars and cuffs were white organdy trimmed with lace and at her neckline she had pinned a purple spray of cloth violets containing a sachet. In case of an accident, anyone seeing her dead on the highway would know at once that she was a lady. So the grandmother wants everyone to know that she's a lady. Even if they get in a wreck and they find her body in a ditch on the highway, she still wants to look good. If she dies in a car wreck, she wants the people who find her body to see that she is a lady, that she is dignified. It's all part of her coping mechanism to avoid who she really is, a bad person, a self-righteous person. And all of that will get exposed later in the story. But what the grandmother was doing was this. She was trying to run from the voice of the law in her life. She didn't want to believe that she was as bad as she was. Even in death, she wanted to be seen as a dignified lady. She couldn't come to grips with the fact that she was as bad as the law says. And we all do this. We're all like the grandmother in this story. We all try to escape the condemning voice of the law because we can't handle the truth that we are as bad as it says. We all want to believe otherwise. We all want to believe our own PR. And so we create these identities as coping mechanisms to try to drown out the voice of the law. We create these identities and we use them as coping mechanisms to, to try to bring the law down to our level to make it more manageable. We're all misfits like the grandmother. But the good news of the gospel is this. God loves misfits because misfits are all that there are. God loves misfits. He loves sinners. He loves lawbreakers. God loves people who break his law because that's all he has to work with. There are only sinners, only misfits, only lawbreakers, and only broken people in this world. And David knew this. David heard the voice of the law. He recognizes that it is good because it comes from God, even though it exposes him. And when you read Psalm 19, it should leave you loving God's law 
cherishing God's law. It should leave you saying that you love it more than all the gold in the world. It should leave you saying that it's sweeter than honey. And this should happen because it speaks the truth about you. The law doesn't pull punches. The law calls you out as a fake. The law will tell you what your friends won't tell you because they fear that you're gonna get mad. The law doesn't pull any punches. The law will call you out as a a fake. The, The law yanks the masks off of your face. It tells you that you're a phony. See, we have people in our lives who are closest who won't even tell us the truth about ourselves because they're afraid what we're gonna do or think. People we have close to us, if they really knew who we were, the things that we think, if they knew these things about us, we're afraid to reveal that to them because they'll think they'll run away. They're afraid to call us out and call us phonies. But the law of God comes, it yanks the masks off of all of us. It says, you're a bunch of fakes, you're a bunch of phonies. And then the gospel rushes in. Then grace rushes in to set you free. Steve Brown said this, the masks we wear bind us to a role that kills the very freedom Jesus died to give us. These masks, these fake identities, these coping mechanisms that we have, that we wear, they bind us and chain us to this role in life that kills the very freedom that Jesus died to give to us. See, when we buy our own PR, when we buy our own publicity, when we wear these masks of self-righteousness, it actually chains us up in prison. And Jesus came to set us free, Galatians 5.1. And that's why when you read Psalm 19, it should remind you that the word became flesh, John 1.14. It should remind you that God has spoken to us in his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, Fully God, fully man, with those two natures united together in one person. Psalm 19 should remind you of Jesus. It describes Jesus, your rock and your redeemer. That's what Psalm 19 does. It describes Jesus. He's perfect. He's the blameless one. He's the righteous one. He brings freedom. He brings liberty. He brings restoration. Jesus, Psalm 19 is saying, he's the true wisdom of God. He's the true source of our joy. He's the one who enlightens our eyes. He endures forever. He is the truth. Psalm 19 should remind you that Jesus, the lawmaker, became a lawbreaker in order to declare us law keepers. It was through his law keeping, through his perfect life, his sinless life, fully obeying the law. It's through that that we become law keepers. The lawmaker became a law breaker on the cross for us in order to declare us as law keepers. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. That means then that you cannot come to Jesus to be justified until you have first been condemned by Moses. You cannot come to Jesus to be justified, to be declared righteous, until you have first been condemned by the law of Moses. If you don't feel desperate and exposed, then you haven't heard the law. And if you don't feel free, delivered, and liberated, then you haven't heard the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that even though we are exposed and we feel the shame and the guilt of our sin, God still loves us. 
Yes, the law comes and strips us naked and exposes us for who we are and we feel ashamed and we feel dirty and we're embarrassed by our behavior, but God doesn't leave. He rushes in in that moment and clothes us with the righteousness of his son. You see, we're all afraid to really play our, show our cards because we think people won't love me. If they really knew who I was, if they really knew the thoughts that go through my head, if they really knew the desires that I have, the things that come out of my mouth when we shut our doors, if they really knew the things that I do, they won't love me. They'll run from me. We're all there. God knows all of that junk about us. And when we're embarrassed and we're ashamed and we feel the guilt and we want and we expect God to run away, he rushes in and he loves us and clothes us with the righteousness of his son. He doesn't leave us. He loves us. When the law exposes our lack of righteousness, Jesus doesn't leave us. He loves us. This is the gospel. When the law levels us, Jesus doesn't leave us. He loves us. So God confronts the muck and the mire and the mess of our lives. He confronts it with his mercy. He seeks us out when we're stuck in sin. He freely offers forgiveness for our failure to obey the law. His grace comes to free us from both our successes and our failures. Because we'll, we'll take our identity, we'll find our identity in our successes. And we find our identity in our failures. And he comes to free us from that comes to free us from our self-righteousness and our lack of righteousness. God loves misfits because misfits are all that there are. And it's all because of Jesus. That means then that the only way that the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart will ever be acceptable in God's sight, like, like verse 14 says, the only way that's possible is if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's only possible if you hear the accusing voice of the law and then you believe the gospel. Then and only then are you in union with Christ. Then and only then are you cemented to Christ, super glued to Christ. Then and only then are you justified and declared righteous and declared blameless and forgiven of all your sins and it's all because of God's son, Jesus. All because the words of Jesus' mouth and the meditation of his heart always pleased his father. And in the gospel, God credits that to you and he credits that to me. And that's what Flannery O'Connor was saying in a good man is hard to find. She was showing us that many of us are like the self-righteous grandmother. And many of us are like the killer named the misfit. And she was letting us know that grace is available for both. The family soon met up with the misfit in the story and two of his fellow escapees and eventually the whole family except the grandmother are taken to the woods and they're shot to death. And fearing for her life, the grandmother says to the misfit, Jesus, you ought not to shoot a lady. I'll give you all the money I got. She only thinks that the misfit is an evil person. And she doesn't see herself that way. She still sees herself as a dignified Southern lady. And so good and evil for the grandmother is just based on social structures, how you're raised. Because this is what she says to the misfit. I know you're a good man. But the misfit shoots down what the grandmother says 
This idea that if you're from a good family, then you'll be a good person. The misfit confirms that yes, he did come from a good family and had good parents, and yet he says he still ended up the way he is a killer. And as the grandmother is talking with the misfit, her hat falls to the ground as she tries to straighten it. She tries to be a lady in that moment by straightening her hat, using her social graces to cope with the situation, but her hat still falls off. So her whole world, her identity as a dignified southern lady, as a decent person, it's all falling down around her. She is literally stripped of her identity as her hat falls from her head into her hand and then onto the ground. And then she soon realizes that she's in a situation where her coping mechanism is not going to save her. She is face to face with a killer, the misfit. And her social graces cannot save her in this moment. Her identity cannot save her in this moment. But as the misfit starts talking about Jesus and his voice starts to crack, she reaches out to him in a moment of grace. In that moment, she realizes she's just like the misfit. It's in that moment that she owns up to her sin. In that moment, she's born again. She says to the misfit, Why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. Then he put his gun down on the ground, took off his glasses, and began to clean them. Without his glasses, the misfit's eyes were red-rimmed and pale and defenseless-looking. And then one of the misfit's associates shows up. She was a talker, wasn't she? Bobby Lee said, sliding down the ditch with a yodel. She would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Some fun, Bobby Lee said. Shut up, Bobby Lee, the misfit said. It's no real pleasure in life. And that's one of the famous lines from A Good Man is Hard to Find, is the misfit says, she would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. What he meant was that she would have been a good woman if she would have owned up to her sin. If the law was there to confront her every day of her life, she would have been a good woman. The grandmother mother finally identified with sin. She came to realize that she is a part of this fallen human race and that she, in fact, is a sinner just like the misfit, even though she used to live her whole life as a dignified southern lady. So the grandmother literally touches the misfit, physically identifies with him as a sinner. She's saying, I'm a sinner like you now. I get it. But the misfit can't deal with this moment of grace. He can't handle her touching him. This is a picture of the grace of God. When we want control in our lives like the misfit, we struggle accepting grace when it comes to us in spite of our failures and in spite of our accomplishments. And so the misfit coils back because when she touches him, he still wants to be in control of his life. He doesn't want grace to intrude. He doesn't want grace in his life, so he shoots the grandmother three times. But when the misfit took off his glasses and began to clean them, this is a picture that grace invaded his life after he killed the grandmother. It's in that moment that he experiences grace, that he is born again. He sees things differently now because he's cleaning his glasses. 
That's why he tells his friend, there's no real pleasure in life. He used to enjoy killing people. That was his identity, but now grace intervened. That's why he cleaned his glasses. He sees things differently now. He's changed. In that moment, he was changed by grace. And that's how David is at the end of Psalm 19. Grace has changed him. That's why he wants God to keep him back from sin. That's why he wants the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart to be pleasing to God. And that's where the misfit is at the end of a good man is hard to find. There's no pleasure doing what he used to do. There's no pleasure in killing anymore. Grace changed him. Maybe you're like the grandmother today. You're self-righteous. You don't think you're that bad. People always talking about sin and that we're sinners. And you think, I'm, that's not me. I'm not that bad. Or maybe you're like the misfit. You know you're bad. You know your sin. You know the shame, guilt, and condemnation that knocks on the door of your heart every day. Grace is for both. Grace is for the grandmothers here and the misfits here. Jesus came for both. Does grace make you uncomfortable? Maybe you don't want grace to intrude into your life. Maybe you coil back at it. But it's only when you're exposed by the law that grace rushes in and brings freedom. God loves misfits and grandmothers because misfits and grandmothers are all that there are. And the proof of that is right here at this table at the Lord's Supper. Let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, many of us here know our sin. We're like the misfit. We know the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that comes because we know we've broken your law. We know we're bad. And some of us here today are like the grandmother. We're like dignified southern ladies who have social graces and manners and we don't think we're that bad and we don't like to talk about sin and we don't like to think of ourselves as a sinner. And both need you this morning, Father. Forgive us of our sins because they are many. Forgive us of our sinful thoughts, our sinful words, our sinful actions, and the sinful motives, the sinful heart that drives everything that we think, say, and do. Wash us clean now, Father, with the blood of your Son. Thank you for Jesus, for his perfect life, who fully obeyed the law for us and gives us his perfect record. Thank you that he became a lawbreaker, a misfit, a sinner on the cross for us. Thank you for making him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God. Thank you for your spirit who has opened our eyes to be able to hear the voice of the law and the voice of the gospel. Change us, God. May your grace change us for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.